It's great to see all of you in person and to be with everybody online today. My name's Cy Huffer, and I uh, get the privilege of being able to talk a little bit about this passage that we're studying. If you're new to College Heights, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Um, If you're kind of wondering what it means to be at College Heights, who College Heights people are, we're pretty much normal people for the most part. Um, You can figure out and guess who those who aren't normal are. Um, But there is one thing that unites us. We are all imperfect people. Um, Every single one of us. If you're perfect here, you're going to mess us up. So please leave. Um, Because we we just aren't. We are all broken. We're all sinners. We keep making decisions that hurt ourselves and those around us. We keep on making these hell on earth for us and for those because we just seem to continue to not be able to live life by ourselves. Like when we live life for ourselves, by ourselves, as the leader of our life, it seems to continue to mess things up. And so because of that, we've all turned to this guy named Jesus. And we said, we need help, like Quadi was talking about earlier. We need help. Teach us, Jesus. Show us how to follow you and be changed by you and to get on mission with you so we can live better lives, live life to the full here, the life that God created us to live. And this life, we believe, comes, studying, comes from studying the Bible, okay, the scriptures, where Jesus reveals to us that, that this scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. It really teaches us what's right, what's wrong, how to get right, how to stay right. That's really all, what it's all about. And we've been digging into this book, the book of 1 Peter, in this new year, because we've been asking, we need to make some resolutions. And not those fickle resolutions like losing weight or financial health or anything like that. Those are good things. But we need to make some resolutions on the foundation of what God is calling us to. A foundation that won't ever change, no matter what storm or trial or trouble that we find ourselves in, these resolutions are eternal and can guide us through all of them. We've made three thus far. Here they are. The first resolution, resolution we made a few weeks ago is this. I resolve to let my trials transform me instead of destroying me. We say every single one of us, we're going to have trials. We're going to have suffering and hard times in our life. We're going to have pain. But is there purpose in our pain? Uh, who are we becoming in the midst of our pain? And are we going to allow the pain to help form us into that person? The second resolution we made was this. I resolved to replace my broken hopes with hope that is eternal. Instead of hoping for all these things, what are we putting our hope in? Are we hoping for the right relationship? Are we hoping for a new job? Hoping for no debt? Hoping for our kids to grow up healthy and and in a safe place? None of those things are promised. But are you putting your hope in the one thing that is promised, that God will never leave you, that he will never forsake you? and that he will guide you into life eternal, life to the full. Last, res- uh, last week, we made this resolution. I resolve to live for God's reputation, not mine. We said this, you aren't just a just. Like, you're not just a volunteer or just a Christ follower, just a member of a church. You carry with you the presence of God and the promise of God and the purpose of God to go make his name famous in every corner of the globe. So we are sent people Today we'll make a fourth resolution from this next kind of section of teaching from the book of 1 Peter. Um, To be honest, I don't want to preach this sermon because this passage is one of the most, I think, challenging passages to live out in the New Testament. It reminds me in 1996, Princess Diana Wales um, went to the South South African country of Angola, uh, Angola, excuse me, um, and there are 15 million landmines that were left because of war in this country. 
And in order to raise awareness for the landmines and the the, the children that continue to step on them and, and find them and not knowing where they were at and get a limb blown off or lose their life, she got geared up into some bomb kind of protective gear and she walked through a live landmine in order to call for the nations of the earth to make a treaty to stop using landmines in their wars. And they knew pretty sure that the area that she was walking was safe. But there was still some risk that one wrong step one little rock that they thought was just a rock but was an actual landmine could kill her. Think about it. Every step you take, risking your life, one step a little too far this way or off a little that way could bring about a life-ending explosion. Friends, that's how I feel about this passage today. Can I just say that? First Peter 2, starting in verse 13, all the way to 3, Verse 11, it's full of landmines. Listen to the topics this passage contains in it. The command at the beginning is to submit. That is not a fun word. There's talk of how to interact with the emperor, the king reigning over you. The emperor was a guy named Emperor Nero. He was a pervert. He was this horrible, greedy tyrant. He says, no, you need to submit to him. It talks about living as God's slaves. That doesn't sound fun. Fear God, honor the emperor. It talks about slaves and master relationships and how to suffer as slaves under an unjust master. It talks about wives submitting to husbands, which is unpopular in this culture today. And then it talks about husbands being considerate in the same way to their wives. That was way unpopular in that culture. It talks about beauty, not the outward adornment of yourself but the inner self, the inner beauty. It's not a bumper sticker. That's not like a beauty sort of fan. Oh, okay. It's biblical. Not repaying evil with evil, but with blessing. Friends, this is a live minefield. I wanted to cross it today in about 25 to 30 minutes. Here's how we're gonna do this, okay? We need to remember who is writing this book and for what reason. Peter the Apostle is writing this letter to a group of Christians who were being persecuted for their faith, who were suffering at the hands of a tyrant, of Nero, of the Roman Empire. Here's what he's not, okay, listen. He's not a politician. Peter's not a politician. Peter's not a prophet. Peter's not a president. He's not, he's not a general. He's a pastor. And like a pastor, he's writing to his flock, his church, in very real time, undergoing very real issues. They needed a word from the Lord now, today. What do we do when we experience persecution and suffering? How do we follow Jesus in the midst of a helpless situation? For that's ultimately what every one of these people were in the midst of. They're in the midst of themselves, they found themselves in the midst of this word, helplessness. Look at the three contexts of, of, of this passage. This is really the, the passage, it talks about these three contexts, and in the middle of it is really the, the teaching he gives them. But look at the context of this. And number one, people under an emperor. Like that's first who he's writing to, people who are living under a tyrant, the emperor Nero. And he says this to them in verses 13 and 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority. Or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. And he says this, here's a second context. Slaves, 
under an unjust master. It says this in verse 18, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I don't, I don't like that when I read that. That doesn't bode well with me. Here's verse one of chapter three. Wives under an unbelieving husband. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, you win them over, is what the rest of the verse says, by your way of life. See, this was where Christianity was taking root and who it was for. It was for the helpless. Christianity was for the weak, the outsiders. In this culture, the emperor and his citizens had rights that non-citizens and foreigners that were brought to the kingdom, that were brought to the empire, they didn't have. And this created a state of helplessness for them. And this is who Peter's Christians were. These are the people that were coming to follow Jesus were the outsiders, the foreigners. In this culture, one in five were slaves. And they were the property of their masters. Some were in good situations and had kind masters. Others were just in terrible situations and they had harsh masters. See, this, this created a state of helplessness and these were the Christ followers. This is who Peter was writing to. They're the ones that were following Jesus. In this culture, women's subjection moved from their father to their husband. And he was the head of the house, his way ruling over the affairs and traditions of the family. This created a state of helplessness. And this is who Peter's Christians were. Women were coming to the faith, were coming to follow Jesus because they were finding hope and were being elevated. Like Paul would talk about that it's not a Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. And all these people in helplessness were finding hope in Jesus. And the same is true here. They were now suffering for their faith, being persecuted. They felt seemingly helpless. Well, let me take a moment and speak to the elephant in the room. Peter telling them to submit is not a biblical endorsement for the institutions of slavery, of misogyny, and of tyranny. Like, absolutely not. If Peter were writing to his congregation, and those people in his congregation were in positions of power, able to undo the societal sins and institutions of oppression, he would have written a different message to them. And all throughout the history of the church, Christians in positions of influence have used their influence to free those who were helpless. Think of William Wilberforce, using his place in Parliament to outlaw slavery in England. Like Christians, that's what we do when, we're, when we find ourselves in places of influence. But that's not who Peter was writing to. He was writing to those who were, in that time and culture, helpless. Or so they thought. And that's why Peter was writing to them. He believed that when it felt as if they had no way to undo the culture and oppression and injustices that, they, that were going against them, that there was one, the, the answer wasn't to give up, to be a doormat, that there was still one more weapon to use to fight evil and sin and injustice that they hadn't thought of yet. And it's this one word, and it's a really hard word to hear, but it's this one word, suffering. Because in the midst of these examples of helplessness, Peter gives one example of power of someone who was in a helpless state, and they used suffering to fight. Look at verses 20 to 25. But if you suffer for doing good, if you suffer for doing good, if you suffer for doing bad, you shouldn't have done the bad thing. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called. 
Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, at Jesus, what did he do? He didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, in suffering, we have been healed. For we, you, us, we were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. These five words in this passage just wrecked me. It's these five. To this you were called. Here's the crux of Peter's encouragement to these helpless Christians undergoing persecution. You have one more weapon to fight with. It's a weapon that Jesus used to defeat evil. He suffered unjustly. He suffered out of love for the very ones who were persecuting him. He suffered for us when we rebelled against him, knowing we would reject him and would ignore him and would deny him and would disobey him. It says this in Romans 5, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, suffering is Jesus' weapon against hate and injustice. When you suffer out of love, you stop the hate cycle. Maybe you know what the hate cycle is. You're probably living in it. You, maybe you couldn't explain it, but you, you, you know that it's real. Let me show you a little bit of a picture of the hate cycle here. See, the hate cycle starts when a person A or entity A hurts entity B. What's the result of that? Well, then B hates A because of the hurt, because of the wound, because of the injustice. And so when there's a chance for B to hurt A, what does B do? B hurts A. And then what happens that, at that point? Well, then A hates B a little bit more. And so when there's a chance for A to hurt B, what does A do? A hurts B. And what happens? We just keep on going around the merry-go-round, don't we? This is the hate cycle. And when you fight evil with evil, when you fight hate with hate, when revolution is the only goal, this is what you jump on in your marriage, in, in society, in your family, in friendships, at work. This is why in the entire history of mankind, there are only a few hundred years of peace recorded that no one was fighting a war. It's because we get in this cycle and, and hate begets hate, which begets, begets hate so forth and, and over and over and over again. Reverend John Perkins wrestled openly with the hate cycle. As a black man that grew up in Mississippi during segregation in the civil rights movement, he experienced firsthand injustice at the hands of an unjust state. His little bit of a story, his, fa his father left his family when he was young. His older brother was his hero, fought in World War II, and when he came home, his older brother was murdered in the town square by a cop. When he returned, John found his, bro his brother's body bleeding, and he got in the car. He remembered holding his body bleeding as they tried to get to the hospital. His mom feared for his life and sent him to live in California because she was scared that he would enter into the same fate of his older brother just because of the color of his skin. In California, he met his wife, Vera May, and he also found Jesus. 
And Jesus began to transform his life and began to teach them as he studied scripture how to follow Jesus and how to be changed by Jesus and how to get on mission with Jesus. And him and his wife felt called by Jesus to move back to Mississippi. That community where he grew up in, where his brother was killed, and to enter into that hell on earth and to bring about heaven. And they began teaching at a Bible institute. And they began serving the poor and having all these co-ops for health care and for food and for clothing and for education and for voters' rights and voters' registration during all the Civil War. I mean, the, I mean the uh, um, Civil Rights Movement. There was some boycotting that they were doing against some of the um, white stores that were being um, racist and prejudiced and and they were having a peaceful protest, and, and the, they're boycotting of the white stores, this, this, this nonviolent way to sacrifice maybe what was easiest for you in order to make a point, stand up for truth. Those that were in power in that community didn't like it. And during a peaceful protest, 23 college students were arrested and taken to jail. Reverend Perkins heard about it with that night to try and post bond, and he himself was arrested, taken into the jail cell, and beat within an inch of his life all night. barely survived. The college students that were there said they saw him on the ground. They thought he had died. After that, there was the court trying to convict him of some crime he didn't commit. And for two years, he was going through trial after trial after unjust trial. In the midst of those two years, he had a heart attack. And he remembers one time getting ulcers so bad in his stomach, they had to remove two-thirds of his stomach and he was sitting in pain in his bed wondering, what am I doing? Is, is following Jesus having any impact? Like, what, what, are we, what are we accomplishing on this earth? There's so much pain, so much hate, so much suffering. And then he writes that these are the words that came to him. And this was the teaching that came to him in that moment of helplessness. I began to see with horror how hate could destroy me. Destroy me more devastatingly and suddenly than any destruction I could bring on those who had wronged me. I could try and fight back as many of my brothers had done, but if I did, how would I be different from the whites who hate? And where would hating get me? Anyone can hate. This whole business of hating and hating back, it's what keeps the vicious circle of racism going. The Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of the cross, Christ on the cross, it blotted, it blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I had suffered. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, this one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he preached. He had suffered. He was arrested and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial he also faced the lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed, killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying. But when he looked at that mob and they had lynched him, he didn't hate them. He loved them. He forgave them and he prayed God to forgive them. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. His enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. And Perkins says this, I couldn't get away from that. 
The Spirit of God kept working on me and in me until I could say with Jesus, I forgive them too. I promised him that I would return good for evil, not evil for evil. And he gave me the love I knew I would need to fulfill his command to me of love your enemy. Friends, this is not an easy teaching. Yet this is what it means to follow Jesus and to be changed by him and to be on mission with him. It's what Jesus means when he says, hey, the way of Jesus is a narrow road. Few find it. It's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. When Jesus invites you to follow him, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, he bids a man or a woman to come and do what? And die. That's what it means to take up your cross. So it's five words. To this you are called. Have I hit a landmine yet? (laughs) Today I didn't want to give you some silly rhyme or bumper sticker sentence to memorize. Um, I don't want to even preach this today because it goes against every bit of our makeup as Americans to stand up and fight for our rights and ourselves. And I think we should. I think we should use every vote, every ounce of our influence to ensure the oppressed are freed from their oppression, that those who are weak and in a helpless situation are lifted up. That's good news of Jesus. He says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor, to set the prisoners free, the recovery of sight for the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like that's Jesus' message of hope. That's for freedom, the crisis that is free. Yet what God's word tells us today is this, when you are helpless to fight, you still have one more weapon, suffer like Jesus did. Suffer. It's this teaching that he says in his Sermon on the Mount, he says when you have someone who sues you and you, they unjustly and they take your tunic, give to them your cloak as well. Well, there was really two pieces of clothing that people had at that time. They had an outer garment and an inner garment. And so if you follow Jesus' teaching, then you would be naked and that person would have, be fully clothed and be holding your clothes. You see, you went the extra mile. You went above and beyond the call of suffering. You leaned into suffering and you sacrificed even more. And the result is that you exposed their injustice. That's what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's what Peter is leaning in here today, is that Jesus didn't just try and fight suffering. He embraced it so much so that the world and the people around go, something's not right. The same thing happened for John Perkins. The way he suffered, the way the courts happened, there was basically three judges that he appealed to, and two of them ruled against him, but one ruled in favor and wrote a 100-page dissension condemning the court system and condemning the state justice and condemning all the stuff, and it led to change. That's the good news of our God. We have to trust him that he takes our suffering and transforms our torture into triumph. Here's resolution number four. I resolve to give up my way for God's way. Like take a moment, take a picture of that. Write it down in a note on your phone, write it down on a piece of paper. This year, how's your way gotten you? Are you in the hate cycle? You keep going around? This year, resolve to live and to give up my way for God's way. I learned this on a personal basis about seven years ago. I've asked Monica to share our story today. Thank you for saying that I could. 
Um, we've been pretty open with you all uh, about our marriage and uh, tough times we've had. If you remember, Monica stood up here boldly in front of our church family. I'm so proud of you. And he gave her testimony that she got caught up about seven years ago in an emotional affair in our 30-year marriage. There was a guy at work that won her heart, and I become a workaholic. I had my own mistress. It was work and school, giving all my time and attention to that. I was no fun. I was not pursuing my wife. Satan used this distance in our marriage to tempt Monica with someone else showing her admiration and attention that I wasn't. The reality is God saved us. Monica confessed because the spirit that was inside of her led her to that. We went to counseling. And through her commitment to Jesus and her commitment to praying to God to take these feelings away and restore our marriage, God brought about healing and restoration. But then there was this guy. I hated him, to be honest. He was way better looking than I was. <laughs> he had betrayed me by pursuing my bride. Six months after Monica and I had worked through all the junk, he was caught in a very public sin and was arrested, found guilty, and while he was on trial in jail, his friends had abandoned him. No one but his attorney could have visited him. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, to this you are called. I was a pastor, so I could provide a pastoral visit for him. So I arranged the visit, and I'll never forget walking that long hallway through the security of the prison to sit across the glass and face my enemy. The only thing that got me through was thinking uh, about Jesus on the cross, praying to God in heaven about the very soldiers that were torturing him. Father, forgive them. They don't know. Like they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. Looking back, I've learned this. When I was helpless, when I suffered this man's hands, if I would have hated him and have become embittered, and if I would have put up walls and never let people in and not forgiven my wife and not forgiven him, it didn't matter if he was in the orange jumpsuit behind a wall, I would have been the one that was imprisoned. 1 Peter 2.22, to this you were called. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We're gonna give you some time today. I want you to ask God for a name. It's a name that you don't want him to give you. It's a name who's hurt you. They may be dead. It may have been decades ago. It's the person that you don't want to see when you go out at a restaurant that grips your heart and makes you sick to your stomach. But I want you to ask God for a name that this year you need to, you need to be set free from your hate, from your bitterness. And you need to find freedom in Christ's love forgiveness and grace that flows through you to others. Ask for a name. Make the words of this song your prayer.